We are in Acts chapter 4 this morning. You can't. Huh? <clears throat> we started into Acts chapter 4 two weeks ago. And we covered the f chapter 3 and then the first four verses of chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 1. Uh, this morning, and um, work our way through verse 22. So before we get started, let's have a word of prayer, and then we can fellowship in the scriptures together. Help us, Lord, this morning as we open your word, that we will be people who long to hear from you, that we desire you more than all that the world has to offer, and that we, will, we today, as we study your word, we will be reminded again of the glory of our Redeemer the worth of our Redeemer, and the amazing thing that you accomplished. So glorify yourself in our study. Help us to understand truthfully and protect us from error. And glorify yourself. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's start in chapter 4, verse 1, and read through 22. You can follow along as I read. Uh, if you remember this story, the backstory on this story before we read, is that uh, Peter, uh, while he was going up to the temple, ran into the one guy who was what? Anybody remember? He couldn't walk. He was lame. From how long? How long had he been lame? From birth, which is about 40 years. And he, by the power of the Holy Spirit, told him to get up and walk, right? And he got up and he was healed and he went to the temple. They preached the gospel. Many people responded to it, as we saw two weeks ago. Uh, but there were some people also who were upset. And that's where we find ourselves this morning. Um, so starting in verse 1 of chapter 4, And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of men who came, uh, came to about 5,000. Verse 5, on the next day their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were in the, of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name do you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people in Israel of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is a stone that was rejected by you, the builders uh, by you the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is no salvation in I'm sorry, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven among men by which we must be saved. And when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, 
what shall we do with these men? For, uh, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. But we cannot speak of what I'm sorry, but we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So there's our text this morning. There's a number of, of important things we can drag out of this text. What's that noise I hear? Do you know? Um, there's a number of important things that we can drag out of this text. We're not going to drag all of them. I'm going to drag a few of them out of the text, uh, and I would encourage you to consi consider the text and conti continue to look at and examine the text in the days to come to wrestle with, is there other things that are of, of importance? Because I would argue there's a whole lot of things of importance. I'm going to touch on a few of them that I'm not going to extrapolate on but I'm going to point them out to you. We're going to work our way through the text, starting in verse 1. There's a couple things that jump out right away. Verse 1, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed. We mentioned it two weeks ago, but I want to point it out to you again. The, the people are there, tons of people are there, because they're go they've gone to the temple to worship. They heard Peter preaching the truth of the gospel. The priests... Then the captain of the temple and the Sadducees come very upset to try to stop them. It's interesting, the group that comes, the group that comes basically, there's three groups mentioned, priests, captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. You can assume that the, temple, uh, the captain of the temple brought the rest of his contingent along as well. He's the representative in the text. But the people who actually enforce the law in the, on the temple, are, is, that's what it's referencing when it says the captain of the temple. They, they had Jews that were assigned uh, to enforce the, the laws of the temple, the rules of the temple. And so you have the priests and the Sadducees there. Of course, the, the, many of the priests are Sadducees as well. But it is interesting, they are reacting. And you see right away they're reacting because of the proclamation what? Jesus is what? Resurrected from the dead. And they have a problem with that because the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe especially in a physical resurrection. So they're not happy with that. The captain of the temple is there to basically arrest them. He, that's his job. He's there to arrest them. So that's what you have here. And of course you see at the end of verse 2, they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. What are they teaching? They're teaching more generally. They're teaching what? The gospel. That the Messiah has come, and you know how Peter's been preaching chapter 2 and chapter 3. What's he been saying? This Jesus whom you crucified has risen again. Resurrection. Now, they're really upset about the resurrection, but you can guess that they're also upset about what? They're upset about the idea that Jesus is also the Messiah. Just the idea that he's the Messiah they're upset about as well. <coughs> So verse 3, they arrest uh, 
Peter and John and the previously lame guy. They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day because it was already evening. In other words, they don't want to deal with that evening. They'll deal with it tomorrow. Verse 4, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. We talked about that two weeks ago. We're going to pick up on that later on as well, uh, just as a reference. But verse 5, we finally arrive to our today's text, and we arrive at the next day. So on the next day, verse 5, their rulers and elders and scribes gather together in Jerusalem. Basically, what's being referenced here is the group called the Sanhedrin. They are the, the, the Jewish rulers. Now, of course, the real rulers of, of the Jews today are, in this day are, are who? They're the Romans. But the, interestingly enough, the Romans were very careful to manipulate who was going to be on the ruling council of Jews so that they would be people that would, what do you think, support? You see, politics is old news. It's not just today, is it? Manipulation and, and, and trying to work things out to your own end, that's not new. It's been going on since the beginning. Anyway, the Sanhedrin, these ruling Jews, gathered together to deal with the issue. Verse 6. Notice there's several other people along with the typical ruling Jews, the Sanhedrin, verse 6, with Annas, the high priest. So the high priest is there, Annas. He specifically is set up by the Roman government. As a matter of fact, his, his um, brother-in-law was Caiaphas, who's also here, and the, the Romans deposed him, and they put Annas in instead. But Caiaphas is also there. You see Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas. Why is Caiaphas there if he's deposed? Because even though he was deposed by the Romans, the Jews highly looked up to him. As a matter of fact, they looked up to him a whole lot more than they looked up to Annas. And so he's along as well. Now, it is interesting. If I may pause on this for a second. Well, before I do, John and Alexander there, well, we don't know anything about them. Whoever this John is and whoever this Alexander is, we really don't know. But they're listed here. So obviously, in Luke's day, people would have known who they were. And all who were of the high priestly family. Now, this is an interesting statement in 6. Now, it's not interesting at first blush, but it is very interesting in, in Luke's storyline with Peter and what is about to happen. Out of the one name that we recognize very clearly, which is who? Caiaphas. If you know about Caiaphas at all, you know that Caiaphas was the most instrumental person on the Jewish side to have Jesus be arrested and tried, convicted, and crucified. He's the one who started the ball rolling in Matthew. He's the one who got everybody together, that is the whole Sanhedrin together, to discuss this problem called Jesus, which was for Caiaphas, primarily a political problem, by the way. And he's the one who got the ball rolling. He's the one who convinced all the Sanhedrin that this is the time, this is a place, we need to have Jesus arrested and tried and convicted and crucified. And he was very specific about that. He wanted Jesus dead. This entire group, this whole Sanhedrin group, are those people. So we are just a few days, like maybe 50, 60 days after Christ's crucifixion, 
And here we are. On the next day, the rulers, all these Sanhedrin, with Annas and Caiaphas, John and Alexander, all were, her, were of the high priestly family. Verse 7, And when they had set them in the midst, that is, Peter, John, and the previously lame guy, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Now, it's important that we understand when they say by what power or by what name, those are parallel terms for the Jews. By what power, by what name are parallel terms. Because when, he, when they mention by what name, they're not talking about name as you and I typically think about name. They're talking about name as in the, the Jewish idea more was in, in, these, in these settings, was more in the same way as Jesus says that you pray in my name. It's not that you quote his name. It's that there is, when you say you pray in his name, you're praying for his glory. You're praying in accordance with his power. You get it? And so when the Sanhedrin asked the question, by what power or name, the Sanhedrin recognized the power in a name. And they want to know, even though he declared, Peter declared the day before it was Jesus, right? He made it really clear. Well, they're thinking we're going to set him up, and in the, in the midst of the Sanhedrin, the ruling elders who can make judgments and execute those judgments, we are going to force them to name it. Name what? Name Jesus. They couldn't be this clueless. They know it was, it, that he, they were referencing Jesus the day before. By what power or by what name did you do this? Notice what Peter does, verse 8. They're trying to entrap him. And what does he do in verse 8? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and of, people, of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a, triple, a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, just stop on the comma right there. It's interesting. Where do they turn first? To the good deed. Are you actually judging us according to a good deed we did? That's what he's saying. Just beginning the process of dismantling their position. And he's going to thoroughly dismantle them a little bit. But before we move off of the verse, there's a couple things that are really important. I'm just picking out a bunch of things that are interesting. But in verse 8, the key word in chapter 4 verse or key phrase in chapter 4 verse 8 is this then peter and what's the next phrase filled with the holy spirit that's an important statement why is this important well a couple of reasons why and we're going to apply it in just a second but first you know peter's story just 50 days earlier or so, he's talking to a slave girl, not the Sanhedrin, right? And he's what? He's cowering and denying, isn't he? He's ashamed. Why? Well, because he wasn't filled with the Holy Spirit yet. It's after the ascension that, that Jesus breathes on them and they receive the Holy Spirit. And now, Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes with power. So you get that two-thing going on there, the two-step process that now is no longer a two-step process, but for there it was. And everything changes for Peter, doesn't it? Now, we've already seen that, chapter 2, right? 
We've already seen it chapter 3, haven't we? Two weeks ago. Now we see it chapter 4. But Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, and then everything happens after that that's important. I'm stopping on this because of a very important reason. This statement is a statement that we desperately, I would argue, need to consider. We need to cogitate on. We need to, we need to marinate in. We need to wrestle with. Because what is happening in this text, I would argue, is this. One of the great things that are being taught in Acts chapter 4 is this. What does it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? It's a very theological thing. What does it actually look like? To be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, in our, in our circle, in our camp, we believe we're filled with the Holy Spirit when? When we get saved, right? When we're converted. And I believe that's a very clear biblical teaching. When Peter's been converted, he has the Holy Spirit. He has the Holy Spirit with power. Well, what does it look like? See, it's really easy. Yeah, yeah, when you're saved, you receive the Holy Spirit. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. Get it. But in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 3, and now Acts chapter 4, and I would argue 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, all the way to 28, what are we going to see? We are going to see over and over and over again, as a matter of fact, I would submit to you, specifically it's mentioned, I think it is 11 times in the book of Acts, this phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit. What does that look like? Luke is very purposeful for the reader that we see what it looks like to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now I say that because I'm not at all convinced that we understand this. Not just we, us, but I think the church in general, I don't think understands this. What does it look like to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What should that look like? And when I say should, I don't mean we've got to do better at it because the Spirit is potent and you and I are impotent when it comes to these things, aren't we? He's the one who causes Peter to do what this passage is describing. Isn't he? It's the Spirit, right? It's the Spirit who causes Paul to get up and do what he does. Isn't it? Mars Hill, for example, when he goes into the pagan temple and he just stands there and preaches the gospel, is that not the Spirit at work? Isn't that not because he's filled with the Holy Spirit? And don't you see that repeatedly throughout the New Testament? It's everywhere, isn't it? Isn't it? Now, it's not just New Testament. We see it in the Old Testament as well. I mean, early on in, in Moses' ministry, uh, I can't speak, God, right? And what does God say? Who made your mouth? Now, does that show up anywhere else after, after Moses gets going? Does it show up that he can't speak? It never shows up. It never does. In fact, he's a pretty potent speaker. He's <laughs> very impressive. Well, what's the difference? The Holy Spirit work. What do we have here? But Peter, or then Peter, filled 
what the Holy Spirit spoke. And we're going to get into what he said in just a second again, but I just want to pause on this. Because I think that this purposeful in the scriptures contrast between the slave girl and the entire Sanhedrin is dramatic. Isn't it? It's stunning, isn't it? I mean, I hear this all the time from people. Well, I don't know what to say. And then I hear the Bible say, don't worry about what to say. What? God gives the words, right? Well, it's not my personality. And then I say, what does the Bible say about personality with regard to the gospel? Yeah, that's the closest we can come. Who made your personality, right? And we could, we could go on and on and on. And, and, and I think when we unpack it, what we have to come to the reality is that we have, we have become very skillful at making excuses. Haven't we? We've become, and we, we not only have become really skillful at, and this is all setting up what's going to come next, we've not only become very skillful at making excuses for why we don't evangelize, why we don't proclaim, but we've enabled and encouraged others to do the same. Have we not? Don't we give people passes? We do. All the time. One of the easiest ways we give passes is we never even ask anybody who they share the gospel with lately. Have you ever asked anybody that lately? I mean, just, you don't have to answer out loud. I just want to challenge us with these thoughts. I mean, it sounds to me like it almost, if you're filled with the Spirit, it sounds to me like it should be expected that being filled with the Spirit, Spirit's going to use your mouth to what? Proclaim. Doesn't that sound like it's, it's kind of normal when you think of the whole corpus of the New Testament? Don't you think that sounds like it should be happening? And do you think that if we're proclaiming the gospel to a lost and dying world as well as to believers, do you think the, the result of that's going to be there's going to be some praising God for what he's doing? Do you think? I mean, would you not expect that? Right? Wouldn't we expect that the result will be there will be some praising of God, even if nobody gets saved? I mean, for Ananias and Sapphira, I'm sorry, for Ananias, never mind saying Ananias. For Paul and Silas, I was saying the wrong terms. For Paul and Silas, nobody gotten saved yet. At that recent point, they got thrown in prison. And they were doing what? They were, pra they were praising God, weren't they? They were singing hymns and praising God in the prison, and there were other prisoners there. So they were hearing what? They were hearing the gospel in praise, right? And then the result is the, the, the um, earthquake came, the prison basically fell apart, the head of the prison was getting ready to kill himself, Paul stops him, and does what? Preaches the gospel. Right? Why? Why would he do that? that? That prison guard probably beat him the night before. Why would he do that? Because he's filled with the Spirit. It's because he's filled with the Spirit. That's why, that's why he sang songs in the midst of all the agony. That's why he preached the gospel. Filled with the Spirit. Does that make sense? 
when I read verse 8, just the initial part of verse 8, then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, and the next word is what, if you have the ESV? The very next word. Said. <laughs> Spoke. Right? I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting perspective. We live in a world today where... As Christians, it's, a, it's somehow acceptable to go day after day after day after day, week after week after week, month after month, year after year, not speaking the gospel. It's somehow accepted today. Now, it's not officially accepted. Like most churches have evangelism programs. We don't, but most churches do. And, and the pastor will get up and talk about evangelism, although usually it's more trying to guilt people into evangelizing instead of really the issue. And I hope you're starting to see the real issue here, right? The real issue isn't that people need to be guilted into it. The real issue is that a question needs to be asked. <laughs> Am I filled with the Spirit or not? But it's acceptable it's, it's, it's somehow acceptable today. In Christian circles, not officially, but unofficially, it's acceptable for people not to share the gospel, not to proclaim the gospel, not to speak the gospel to lost people, nor to save people. It is unofficially acceptable. That people can go day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, not preach the gospel to an unsaved person, even though we're in touch with unsaved people all the time. And somehow it's acceptable, as evidenced by no accountability, no, no anything. And somehow it's even acceptable that we can go, unofficially of course, but that we can go long periods of time, not even ministering the gospel to one another. And it's somehow acceptable. It's somehow, that's fine. And by the way, I would say that when it comes to the lost, it's becoming more and more officially acceptable not to do it in the conservative churches. Believe it or not, you know what the big emphasis in evangelism now is? It is invite your neighbors, your friends, your co-workers to church and we'll tell them the gospel. Let the professionals tell them. Tell, let the pastor tell them the gospel. So you, no longer is it that you should be my witnesses, but you shall bring them to me so I can be your, their witnesses. That's not what the Bible says. It doesn't say it anywhere. It's, it's challenging to me when I look at verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. He spoke. When he was filled with the Spirit. It goes back to what Paul said. Because I, I, I know the love of God. Or I'm sorry. Because I know the fear of the Lord. I persuade men, he says. And, and the love of Christ controls me. I mean, you think about what Paul said there, especially the second one I quoted, which I think in the scriptures is the first one. They come two verses after each other in Thessalonians. It's 1 Thessalonians. He said, the love of Christ, what? Controls me. I think the King James says, constrains me. 
if you think about that, the love of Christ controls me. He's talking about proclamation uh, to the lost. The love of Christ controls me. The love of Christ constrains me. You get the picture, don't you? That word controls or constrains gives you the idea, doesn't it? That because I know the, or I'm sorry, the love of Christ is coming to Paul, right? It's, it's, Paul is a recipient of Christ's love, redeeming love with all the grace and mercy that goes along with it, and he has the Holy Spirit, he's filled with the Holy Spirit, and the love of Christ therefore controls him to what? To proclaim Christ. That's the point of the text. The love of Christ, and the picture is, controls me. That's what Paul says. Now, you get the idea of control, right? I mean, it makes sense. This is not for Paul an option, is it? It's not for Paul this idea, well, you know, that person really needs to get the gospel, and maybe I should, maybe I should, maybe I, yeah, I know I should, but uh, that's not the picture, is it? Because you see, what's happened for Paul, and I'm going to get back to chapter 4, verse 8 here in just a second, but what's happened for Paul is this. When he was saved, he was his his stony heart was replaced with what? A fleshy heart. That's what the scriptures say. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. What does the scripture say? He received the Holy Spirit. And when he received the Holy Spirit, what happened? His affections changed by what? By being controlled by the love of Christ. As he understood the love of Christ, he couldn't help himself. Why? Because his heart had been changed as well. He couldn't help himself because Christ was all in all to him. And so it wasn't a, well, God commands it, so I better do it. It's like, I love Jesus because he first loved me. Let me tell you about it. First love stuff, right? That's why in Revelation it says your problem is you left your first love. Love of Christ controls. And you find this repeatedly. I find it interesting, although, although it, we're going to see in just a little bit, this previously lame guy is silent. He doesn't look like he said anything. But he had plenty of opportunity to distance himself from Peter and John, didn't he? You know he did. They're being questioned. As far as we could tell, the previously lame guy didn't say a word. But he knows nothing except for one thing. Fear of the Sanhedrin before he got saved, right? Fear of the Sanhedrin as a good Jew. But I suspect he was probably one of the 5,000 that the text references. He certainly is described in chapter 3 as coming in the temple and doing what? Leaping and praising God. Correct? So I suspect he's one of the believers now. And so you find the previously lame guy, although Peter being Peter, he's kind of dominating the conversation, right? But the one thing that you don't see is this previously lame guy doing what? 
falling into what so is easy to do, and that is self-preservation. Does that make sense? He just spent the night in prison, didn't he? All he can think of at this point in time, there's going to be a lot more days like last night coming. And where is he standing? Right next to Peter and John. He's standing with Peter and John. He's identifying with Peter and John, and Peter speaks. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a, trip, uh, to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed? L verse 10, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. That's kind of a harsh conversation, isn't it? Would you not agree that's a little bit of a harsh conversation? Yeah, that's a great way to put it, Ken. It's in your face. It's fighting words. Filled with the Holy Spirit, what does Peter do? I want you to notice this. This is really important. I was talking to Lois about this before service. What does Peter do? Peter turns to, you answer it for me, good news or bad news at this point? Bad news. Is it not bad news? Listen to it again. Let it be known, verse 10, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. And then he goes on, verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. That's bad news. That was fighting the words. Good answer, Ken. He just said to the Sanhedrin, the people who condemned Jesus to death and who partnered with the Romans so that Jesus would actually be crucified, Peter stands before them, filled with the Holy Spirit, fold verse 8 into it, filled with the Holy Spirit, and he does what? He proclaims condemnation on them. Does he not? Is it not bold? Is it not in your face? Is it not bad news? Listen, the gospel, I just want to point it out to you. We see it three times, chapter 2, chapter 3, now chapter 4. The gospel is first bad news before it's good news. It must always be bad news before it's good news. And the only way you're going to be someone, and I'm going to be someone, who will preach bad news to people, proclaim bad news to people, like this, is if what? We have the Holy Spirit. And therefore we have the good news. The only way you're going to do it is if... And I, I, I say this because I think, I think most churches and most Christians are off the rails on this. It's classically summed up in what one of the probably the most famous uh, gospel presentations there is. It's called the, the Romans Road. You ever heard of it? How does the Romans Road start out? It starts out this way. God, what? God 
loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Really? Do you see that in this text? At this point? Is that, is that where Peter starts? Hey, Sanhedrin, I want you to know something. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Is that how he starts? Is that even hinted at? Is it even in the same genre? It isn't, is it? How about chapter 3? How about chapter 2? How about anywhere? How does Romans start out? The first three chapters, Ken, how does Romans start out? For three chapters you're condemned, right? For three, when you read Romans, the first three chapters, you are absolutely destroyed. For three chapters. Two and three quarters chapters. Absolutely destroyed. Everyone is condemned. You're condemned. Your neighbor's condemned. Everyone is condemned. Everyone stands hopeless before God. That's the gospel message that is bad news. To preach a half a gospel is not to preach the gospel. And so what Peter does, and it's not just Peter. Paul does the same thing. John does the same thing. All of them, same message. Some would say, well, but Jesus didn't kind of do that, did he? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, he did. Matthew chapter 5, what we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. It sounds like good news, right? No, it's condemnation because none of them are meek. Which means because none of them are meek, what's going to happen to them? They're not going to inherit the earth. That's condemnation. Which is why, after giving all those, what we call beatitudes, which is a bad term for it, which is all bad news, because none of them measure up, it's all condemnation, that Jesus then, from then on out in Matthew, is spending all his time saying, it's all bad news for you, so I'll, I'll take your place. But the bad news must come first. And it always does in the Scriptures. And the only way that you and I and anybody else is going to go to a lost and dying world and say to them, bad news. Is if we're filled with the Holy Spirit. That's it. But when we are, you know what happens? Do you know what happens? Speak. When you're filled with the Holy Spirit, then suddenly you should be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth starts to what? It starts to happen. Doesn't it? We see it evidentially in Acts, don't we? It happens. Twice in this section, he points out that they killed Jesus. First in verse 10, by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. And then verse 11, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. <laughs> the builders of what? The builders of Israel. They're the leaders of Israel. You rejected Jesus. You rejected the stone. You said it was an inferior stone. You said it was a stone not worthy of being part of the building. Called Israel. 
And what does he say? This Jesus, the stone that you've rejected, that was rejected by you, the builders, which is, which by the way, comes right out of uh, Psalm 118, which is a very messianic passage, which has become the what? The cornerstone or the chief stone of the entire building, in spite of you, Sanhedrin, is what he's saying. In spite of you. You did everything you could to destroy Jesus. And he's become the cornerstone. He's become the chief stone. And then Peter builds on it even more, verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. What did he just do? What, what Peter just did is several things. Number one, he said they need to be saved, right? But number two, he made it exclusive, didn't he? Sanhedrin, you crucified him. You rejected him. He's the only hope. Is that what they said? For the first time, hope is introduced in the, in the gospel here, isn't it? In this section. Is this the first time? In chapter 4? We didn't see any hope before now. But what do we find? And there is no, and there is salvation in no one else. What did, first of all, Peter just proclaimed there is salvation, right? There is hope. But it's found nowhere else than Jesus. There, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So verse 12 is dripping with hope. But first must come the condemnation. Verse 13 is interesting as we continue to build off of verse 8 about this idea, being filled, Peter being filled by the Holy Spirit. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, that is, not, not that he's ignorant, but they're uneducated with the law. They're not Sanhedrin. <clears throat> Perceive they're uneducated common men. They were what? They were marveling or they were astonished. By the way, they said the same thing about Jesus earlier. When he was 12. Didn't they? And other times as well. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They connected the dots. Yeah, they, we, we, and by the way, could I just say this? When, he said, when it says here they recognized that they had been with Jesus, it's probably a twofold thing. They recognized that they had been with Jesus because they were his disciples. They saw him for three years plus being with Jesus. But I think there's also another meaning to this that's probably accurate as well. They recognized they had been with Jesus because now they're speaking like Jesus spoke. They're proclaiming like Jesus proclaimed. In the Gospels, Jesus is described as speaking with authority. And here we find Peter doing what? Speaking with authority. And they're astonished. What's that? Yes, absolutely. The evidence is they're starting to look like Jesus. They're starting to sound like Jesus. This is what happens when we're filled with the Spirit. Verse 14, But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. 
when you combine what Peter just proclaimed with the fact that the, this guy standing next to him is healed, they, they're, they're, they're stumped. Their best laid plans just fell to pieces. Verse 15, but when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, so they asked, they told the uh, Peter, John, and the previously lame guy to leave temporarily. Then they had their council meeting. Verse 16, saying, what shall we do with these men? For that, for that's a, for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You know what? Why it's, it's known throughout Jerusalem? Because people are talking about it. 5,000 were converted. People are talking. It spread like wildfire. Everybody in Jerusalem, all the Jews in Jerusalem knew about this, this lame guy because he was there every week. They walked by him every week when they'd go to the temple. Numerous times during the week, they'd see him begging for money. Word spread like wildfire. We can't deny it. They're not stupid. The guy is walking, and he never walked before in his life. They can't deny it. Interesting how they respond. I mean, you'd think that. They'd say, wow, look what happened. We can't deny it. Maybe, they're, maybe there's something to it. Or maybe Peter's right. Or how about maybe we were wrong. But that's not what they do. Why? Because these things are spiritually discerned. Because their hearts are dark. So look what happens. Verse 17, But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Their point is to quell it. We can't let this go any further. And it's interesting that the Sanhedrin do what? They can't even speak the name of Jesus. Can they? What do they do? What do they, what do they say? They say, we've got to stop them from speaking in this name. They, they, they hate him. Can I ask you a quick question? Comparison contrast. Just an application of this, this text we just looked at. Real quick. If you're with somebody somewhere, anywhere, Starbucks, wherever, another Christian, and that Christian starts boldly proclaiming the name of Jesus, rejoice or embarrassed? Rejoice or start thinking, okay, this isn't the time or place. Maybe we've got to stop this. Uncomfortable. Are we close? The reason why I ask the question is: Are we closer to the Sanhedrin? Are we closer to Paul, John, and the previously lame guy that's rejoicing? Important question, isn't it? Sanhedrin are like, "Whoa, we got to stop this." Now, no, nobody who who is a good church member is ever going to say, "Wow, we got to stop this." But how about just extreme discomfort? Interesting thought. So anyway, verse 18, 
So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach it at all in the name of Jesus, or teach it all in the name of Jesus. So they call in front and say, you can't do this. You can't do this. You must stop. Notice 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. Peter and John look at the Sanhedrin and say, you got to do what you got to do. Is that what they're saying? You got to do what you got to do. You got to judge whether that's the right thing for you to do or not, but you need to understand something. We must obey God rather than men. Now, why do I camp in this one? Because I just want to address something. And I know I'm probably going to step on toes here. But, you know, we live in a society today that dictates to us when to speak the gospel and when not to, primarily when not to. Do we not? There are a lot of jobs that you can have where the boss will tell you straight up, you can't preach the gospel while you're working. No, they won't use the word preach the gospel. No religion talk while you're working. And we all know that's true. We all know it's true. It's everywhere. And you know what we do today? As good Christians, we say, well, i got to have my job, so I'm going to what? I'm not going to speak at, at that place. And I just maybe speak somewhere else, although usually it kind of does what real quick? It bleeds over, right? Once we've compromised, it bleeds over. Doesn't it? It starts flowing elsewhere. It is interesting that if I just may use the example, and if I step on people's toes, I'm okay with that. But like today, just to use the example, you work at a secular school, and you'll be told straight up, religion has no place at school. Right? Religion has no place at school. Now, I just want to challenge us to ask ourselves a question. Peter is not a fisherman. Peter is a teacher who lives in the 21st century. Okay? And he's a public school teacher, and he's applied to a job, and, and, and they interview him, and they say, yeah, Peter, I understand you, uh, you're kind of a religious guy, but there's no preaching the gospel here. There's no talk of religion here at work. I'm not picturing Peter saying, you got to do what you got to do. I'm sorry. I'm not picturing Peter saying, oh, okay. Are you? Are you picturing Peter saying, okay? Are you picturing Peter just not saying anything? Are you picturing Peter saying, okay, in his mind, okay, I, I'm not going to preach the gospel at school. I'm going to instead just do it on my free time. Is that what we see? Do you think Peter would be that way? But you know what we have today? It is the accepted norm that when it's said you can't, that we say okay. And we don't realize that every time we surrender ground, what are they going to do? I mean, think about it. You surrender ground, what are they going to do? If the, you surrender ground to an enemy, what are they going to do? They're going to take more ground, are they not? And then you surrender more ground, and they're going to do what? They're going to take more, and then you surrender. Are they ever going to be satisfied? You know it's the case, but we deceive ourselves into thinking it's not the case. They're the enemy. They're working for a different kingdom. 
If Peter was a teacher today, and I'm just using teaching as an example, if Peter was a teacher today, and they said to him, you can't talk about religion at school, or anything religious, I'm just picturing Peter saying, you know, you got to do what you got to do. you got to judge if that's right for you to say that or not. But what does he say? But as for me, we cannot speak, we cannot but speak what we have heard, seen and heard. You know what Peter's just said? Because he's filled with the Holy Spirit, I can't help it. <laughs> I can't help it. You know what Peter just declared? He said, It's who I am. It's almost as if he's saying, You can't tell a zebra not to wear stripes. How do you do that? A zebra is going to have stripes, right? He's going to have stripes. Can't help it. It's the nature of the animal. It's his DNA. And what we have here is Peter saying, it's my spiritual DNA. I can't help it. The love of Christ is controlling me. You're telling me not to. I, it's, it's who I am. It's all I know. Do you think Peter would be sitting here saying, well, man, if I say this, I may, get, I may lose my job. Do you think Peter's saying that in the 21st century? Well, he certainly isn't saying this about facing prison, is he? He's not saying it in face of the real possibility he's going to get beaten and thrown in prison. He's like, okay. When Peter later, in, I'm sorry, when Paul later in Acts gets arrested and hauled up to up on top of the steps of the temple, what does he do in front of the mob that want him dead? And they, he's only got a few guards around him trying to protect him. And the mob is screaming for his head. What does he do? He preaches Christ and crucified to the mob that want to crucify him. It's his DNA. Because he's filled with the Spirit. And the result is it's like, no cost is too high. Why is, why is no cost too high for Peter? Because no cost is too high for Christ. No cost was too high for Christ to save me. No cost too high for Peter. And we sit around, well, my, friend may, my friends may not like me. My friends may not hang around with me anymore. My, my neighbors may distance themselves from me. And on and on and on and on. I may lose my job and this and that and something else. It's like, that's foreign to, to the scriptures with regard to being filled with the Spirit. And it calls into question a lot about us when we think this way. Verse 20 again, For we cannot but speak what we have seen and heard. The implication being if we've seen and heard, how can we, not, how can we but speak? Verse 21, 
And when they have further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were what? All were glorifying or praising God for what had happened. Can I just point this out real quickly? <clears throat> this is very different from the people following Jesus when he was doing all the miracles. Because they were loving all the miracles, weren't they? And they wanted more miracles, and they were praising Jesus, Hosanna, Hosanna the highest, right? And all the rest. This is very different. <clears throat> they were all, they, uh, because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. What had happened? Well, verse 22 says, For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So certainly it includes the miracle, doesn't it? It's certainly, I don't want to deny the miracle. It's certainly the miracle happened, but it's very different from the, old, from the gospel miracle events. Because the people in Jesus' day who were following Jesus when he was performing miracles, they were all caught up in the miracle, right? All they wanted to see was the miracle. They wanted more miracles. But these people are described as what? See, in the, in the gospels, it's, they're, not, they're not described as praising God. Here they're described as praising God. Why are they praising God? Because they also become filled with the Spirit. Yeah, they're, they're amazed by the healing, right? But what did it say again? Verse 4. And the number of men came to about 5,000. Who what? Believed and are saved. And they're praising God. They're amazed at the miracle. And they're praising the God of the miracle who, could I just throw this out here? Who, yes, healed, but the greater miracle is what? 5,000 went from death to life. Whether that's three and two or three and five. As Tom said two weeks ago, pretty amazing group of people. Size of people. Two things that are large in this text. <clears throat> Number one, bad news comes before good news. Number two, fill with the Holy Spirit means something. Fill with the Holy Spirit evidences itself dramatically. Probably better said, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, He evidences Himself dramatically and powerfully. I was just in a conversation with somebody this week, <clears throat> two different people. One was on Facebook, the other one was face to face. The one. One uh, on Facebook was really interesting. It's a Christian. I know her. She uh, goes to a, what would be described as a good, solid, conservative church. And um, uh, she's she a graduate of Word of Life. She's one of my students. <clears throat> and she, was, she went off this week on, it's not our responsibility to judge. Not our responsibility to judge. And so I addressed that. And I said, actually, how do you deal with someone with regard to their sin if you don't judge? And she, said, and she responded to that in some inane way. And I said, how do you even evangelize somebody? How do you even proclaim the gospel to somebody who is lost without bad news? And bad news means you judged. <laughs> And she said, nope, nope, my responsibility is just to love people. That's, only my, that's my only responsibility. I agree with that statement. 
Our responsibility is to love, but the question is, what does that look like? With regard to the gospel, when I'm proclaiming the gospel, if I'm loving people, I am first always doing what? Telling them bad news. Gospel always starts with bad news. Otherwise, there's no good news. Has to, and, and, and it's not just bad news, it's fatally bad news. It's hopeless bad news. Hopeless. It's con- condemning bad news. It must be. And the only way to get from that to the good news is a call to repentance, which nobody wants to talk about. Which brings me to a second conversation I had just yesterday with someone, and this is a face-to-face conversation, and they're talking about their pastor. They've loved their pastor, and he's a, he's a conservative pastor of a growing church. And he said, I love, my, I love the pastor. We were talking about this stuff that we're talking about here. And, he said, and I was talking about repentance and the need for a call to repentance because the gospel always, whether we're talking about a belief, to a believer or to a non-believer, it always starts with bad news. And it must be accompanied with a call to repentance and to turn from and to. From our sin and to Christ. And and the person said to me, you know, I love my pastor, I love my church, but you know, there's something that really bothers me as I hear that you talk about this. I said, what's that? He said, I love my pastor, I love his preaching, but he almost never talks about repentance. And I said, if he's not talking about repentance, you know what that means? It can only mean one thing. If he's not talking about repentance, he's not talking about bad news. If he's not talking about bad news and not talking about repentance, he's giving a truncated gospel, which is no gospel at all. It is no gospel at all. The gospel is bad news before it's good news. It must be bad news before it's good news. And number two, this is just review. Number two, when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, you know one of the greatest evidences of it is? I'm speaking. One of the greatest evidences I'm filled with the Spirit is I'm speaking. I'm speaking what? I'm speaking with regard to the one who loved me and loves me and will continue to love me. I'm speaking of the one who sacrificed and died for me and wore my sins and absorbed my wrath. And I find myself compelled to. I don't need to be guilted into it. It's by the power of the Spirit. Now, I was sharing with this person this, uh, last night. I said, I said, here's the deal. So, you know, it's really interesting because I can preach from the Scriptures and I can teach theology and I can correct people's theology and actually help them to get their theology more correct as my theology is changing and getting more correct all the time as well. I, I haven't arrived. But I can help people with that. That's all by the power of the Spirit. I'm just a mouthpiece, right? That's all by the Spirit. But I can help people change, and I've watched a lot of you have changes in your theology over the years, and I hope that the Lord used me as a part of that process. Because He uses means. 
But you know what's interesting? This is what I told him. I said, but you know what? At the same time, no pastor can ever change anybody's DNA. He can't do it. You just can't. A zebra is a zebra is a zebra is a zebra. And the only way that ever changes is because the one who created the zebra changes the DNA. That's it. See, I can, I can convince people who are lost of various theological positions. I've done it many times. I can, I can, and that's not spirit stuff. That's just power, power of reasoning and power of logic. <laughs> I can convince people I can't change your DNA. DNA is a creator change. It's not a creation. Creation can't change creation. Spiritual DNA has to be changed by the Lord. He's the creator. I pray for all of us, myself included, that God will change our DNA. Spirit does that. I'm convinced beyond a shadow of a doubt the Spirit changes our spiritual DNA. That's what the Scriptures argue. We were dead in our trespasses and sins and He makes us alive. We had this type of heart, He gives us this type of heart. It's DNA stuff. Spiritually speaking, isn't it? He makes us someone we're not up to that point in time. He takes us from natural and makes us supernatural. He changes us in every way when He saves us. I pray for us that God will change our DNA through the Spirit's working in our lives. I can certainly do what most pastors do and try to coerce people, to reason with people, to try to convince people to proclaim the gospel. For example, since that's what this text is about. But you know what I'm absolutely convinced of? I'm absolutely sold to the soul of my being on this. That when we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we will what? we will proclaim the gospel. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we will preach Christ and Him crucified. When we are filled with the Spirit, we will. It's not we have to, we will. That's what He said in Acts chapter 2, chapter 1, verse 8. He says, the Spirit's going to come upon you with power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part of it. That's what He said. <laughs> he didn't say you, you got to. It's interesting, every commentary I've ever looked on Acts 1.8 always says it's a command, and it's not. You will. You shall be my witnesses. And the evidence is really clear. Isn't that exactly what happened? You see, when the Spirit fills us, then you know what happens? We proclaim. Now I know. We're prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. But that, you know what that means? That means that the gospel, the Spirit uses the gospel in our lives to do what? To call us to repentance and convict us. Doesn't he? So that we what? Repent from and repent to. And then what happens? We proclaim. We speak. Is that what happens? That's what the scriptures show. So the challenge to you and I is, not we've got to go out and do better again like we've always said. Can I just encourage and exhort each one of us that this is exactly where our prayer needs to be? Change me, Lord. 
Fill me with what? With your spirit so that I will, I will fall so deeply in love with you that I will not be able to help it. You are the maker of my mouth. Change me. Give me Holy Spirit boldness. Give me Holy Spirit passion and zeal. And I would just submit to you that if we pray that way, because I believe the Spirit, and if we seek the Lord while He may be found, we better buckle our seatbelts. Because he moves as we see. He transforms. He transforms our spiritual DNA. And watch out world. And people are going to start to say not, oh, he goes to church? Oh, she goes to church? Oh, he's a Christian? They're going to say, huh, she's been with Jesus. He's been with Jesus. And they're going to hate you. They're going to warn you. And you're going to pay a price. But you're going to be with Peter saying, no price is higher than what Jesus paid. (laughs) And it's all worth it for him. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, help us. This text certainly seems to show us that we have, we have probably compromised in lots of ways we don't realize. <clears throat> we have minimized, excused, been embarrassed by, ashamed of our Redeemer. We ask you that you will fill us anew. That you will work in our heart, in our spiritual DNA. that we will understand your love. We ask you to open the eyes of our hearts so we will understand. So that we will know. So that we will long for you and long for others to know you.